Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Church, and you promise yourself you'll never say them in church. I'm about to say one of those. If that didn't bless you, there's something wrong with your blesser. (laughs) Amen? In fact, we're just going to flesh out a little bit about what that song means, and then we're going to reprise that at the end and give you another chance to kind of get in that moment, because it matters. If God is for us, who can be against us? We say it. But is that the reality of our daily emotional existence? God's for me and not against me. God's for me and not against me. He's for me and not against me. And to live in that space, to embrace that reality, to feel it at the emotional level, to feel it at the place of reassurance that God really gets me, that He actually understands me, me, my intricacies, my weaknesses and failures and phobias and issues. And he's still for me and not against me. Now, I grew up in the church and nobody ever told me anything other than God was for me and not against me, but I did get the impression that God was not always for me and that at some times he probably really desired to thump me. Probably not smite me, but thump me. And he was known to send plagues and stuff, so I didn't know quite how it all fit together. So as we think about what that looks like and what that means, and as we worship around these words from Mark 15, the words from the cross, verse 33, at noon... Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, and at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Earlier this morning, we were getting ready to crank up over at Pasadena, and the media person stopped me on the way into the sanctuary and said, "Uh, just look in here, and there are no points to the sermon. Is that correct? Yes, it is a pointless sermon. Yes. So just prepare yourselves for that at the beginning here. There's no point. Uh, Nothing to write down. No ones, no twos, no threes. No poetry at the end. This is just a narrative. So you can kind of live in that reality. By the way, we started, I don't know if you noticed, but uh, some people came and did abatement. uh, And I kind of like better what we have now than what we had last week. How anybody ever feel that way? Kind of went with the Flintstone look you know, kind of bedrock kind of things happening. Just to remind you of this, we uh, were talking this week as a staff, uh, we're going to do a lot of stuff here. There's going to be a lot of inconvenience and dirt and things happening. Uh, We have no intention to slow down ministry while this is happening. In fact, if anything, we're going to put the pedal down a little bit. This is supposed to build momentum, not stall momentum. Everybody with me on that? Which means we're going to be tough, tenacious, non-Californian type human beings for the next few months. Amen? Amen. And when it's inconvenient, we'll walk, even if it's a whole block, maybe two. We will. We will. 
It was fun this week because we were talking about vacation Bible school. We're going to do a full-blown vacation Bible school here on this campus. We don't know how yet, <laughs> but we're going to do it together. And, uh, and so I just want you to have an expectation that ministry is going to continue uh, at full pace and probably a little extra for the next few months. Uh, and uh, so be a part of that and a part of that celebration. Thinking together about if God is for us, who could be against us? I have this dilemma. There are pieces of Scripture that I struggle to understand and to comprehend. And it's not like I think that I have to comprehend it in order for it to be true. It's just that sometimes as an apologist for the Word and for the author of the Word, I feel like I need to ask good questions. And so when the writer of Hebrews says these words, he, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us, but one who was tempted in every way as we are tempted, yet was without sin. Therefore, let us come before the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and grace in our time of need. I struggle with this passage. He was tempted in every way as I am tempted. Really? Was he? I don't know how many of you have trouble thinking about that. I, I just think about the reality. of Was he really as petty as I am at times? I mean, let me rephrase that. Was he really tempted to be as petty as I am at times? Was he really tempted to have those little things running through his head, you know, little, little smart remarks, little mean things that you could say that you just want to lash out a little bit? Was he really tempted with all of the... With the smallness, with the weakness, with the baser instincts, was Jesus really tempted? And so as I'm trying to get my brain around that and trying to understand it and trying to identify it, because I would just say this, and you're all looking at me like, oh no, where's he going? For most of us, that God is for us and not against us is related to this issue. Does he get me? Was he really tempted in every way as I'm tempted? Because we read it and we go, that's theological salad, word salad, theological word salad. We just, it's just words. But it's the heart of our theology. It's the heart of who we are. And so when I try to get my brain around it, when I try to think about Jesus going through being tempted to feel the same kind of, uh, of self-doubt or even self-loathing, when I think about Jesus being tempted with all of these human emotions and, and, hum and you know, temptation for us, sometimes it's in the front window. Sometimes we're tempted to act out, but a lot of the times we're just tempted to act up. You understand what I'm saying by that? Yeah. We're not always doing something wrong. A lot of our temptation goes on inside of here in the way we think and in the, in the feelings that we don't even express because we keep them well hidden because we understand the facade of what is expected of us and how to behave. And so through gritted teeth, we say, hello, how are you? Yes, you're welcome. Thank you. It's always preaching is an interesting thing because I stand up here and reveal and you stand out and look like this. Mm. Wow. And so in the years that I've struggled with this passage and, and thought about it, there's this realization of a couple of things. 
the first one takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I think it's so foundational to human existence that it matters. Matthew 26, 36, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you'll not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and he went away once more. And he prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And when he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. I, I, I think when you think about these words and you think about this scene and you think about how Matthew gives us this detail, it seems to me that this is so fundamental to the human existence that that it underwrites the understanding that he was tempted in every way as we are tempted. That at this moment, what we are seeing is we are seeing the fulfillment of God's great plan. So God's got a trajectory, an arc, that it's all coming together. That, that his will is unfolding and that the salvation of the human species is at hand. But Jesus is living a very human experience of what's happening. And there's probably a piece of him that understands that, yes, God has some, anybody been there? Yes, God has some plan out there in the ether somewhere that makes perfect sense. And in the trajectory of eternity, it will all work out. But today, Amen. what I am experiencing is not fair. And it's not okay. My friends have betrayed me. The investment that I have made with my life, with my energy, with my passion, is not returning to me anything. They can't stay awake for 15 minutes to pray for me in my hour of anguish when I have traveled with them and healed the sick and, and, and multiplied the bread and done miracle after miracle and taught and poured into their lives. And they can't stay awake. And the people that represent the worst of the culture. The cheaters. And the liars. And the people that misrepresent God for their own ends. Are going to win the day. It will look like at every level that what I have lived for and what I have preached about and what I have stood for and what I have longed for and what I tried to correct and what I tried to fix and what I have spent my life doing is for nothing at all. My friends will desert me. 
And some will betray me. And some will deny me. And the weight of this moment. So that though Jesus knows this great arc in eternity in which God is doing something wonderful in these moments, in his heart, as a human, he anguishes. And he prays and he begs. God, change how this is going. Change the circumstances that are unfolding, of which I am a part, of which I will be involved, of what will happen to me. I do not want this to be the case. This is so fundamental to what it means to be a human being that it starts to make the Hebrews passage make some sense. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us, but one who was tempted in every way as we are tempted, yet was without sin. Therefore, let us come with confidence before the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace in our time of need. The longer that I have thought about and wrestled with this question, then the second scene has become incredibly important in the understanding that he was tempted in every way as we are tempted. And that story and that scene unfolds in Mark 15, 33. We read it earlier. Let me read it again to you. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think often when we try to talk about, everybody doing okay, by the way? I recognize that when we are going to do a Lenten journey and we're going to use the saints from the cross, these are going to be heavy sermons, but they matter. In fact, to just give you a trajectory of what we're doing, we're going to, we're going to be in this conversation about the saints of the cross until the Easter celebration. We'll celebrate the resurrection. We'll start a new series on Easter Sunday called The Hope is Real. And we're going to celebrate not only Resurrection Sunday, but then the appearances of Jesus post-resurrection and the lessons that he's teaching us. That it's not just about resurrection, it's also about a lot of other really important things that make the hope not just this theological thing, but a very practical thing. So you can kind of settle into that thought. The hope is real. And so I think sometimes when we talk about the cross and we, we get into conversations about the atonement and we get into conversations about the theories of atonement and if you've done very many Bible studies or you've had any sort of theological training, you know that this is a very long conversation. And when you've had all the long conversations about why the cross and how the cross, you, you, you would like to tie it up in a really nice, neat bow, and you'd like to apply some theory of atonement, and you'd like to explain it all, and then when you tell the story, everybody in the room goes, oh, oh, but words are inadequate. They fall far short of adequately explaining the how and the why. And sometimes I get frustrated because I think instead of always focusing on the how and the why, shouldn't we celebrate that God so loved the world that he gave his only son? We don't have to understand all the how and all the why. And, and maybe you don't even believe the story, but you've got to admit it's an elegant, beautiful story. That God who is holy, who cannot tolerate sin or that would betray justice, 
but practices mercy and holds these two in perfect balance, that the mind and character of this God who is holy became tabernacled in human flesh. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was pierced for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. It satisfies the justice of God so that God now acts in perfect mercy. He sacrifices Himself so that we might be reconciled to God. There is a celebration that God is for us and not against us, that he was tempted in every way as we are tempted. Mark is an interesting gospel. It's only 16 chapters long, and yet it focuses on the crucifixion in such a central way that it is unique to all the other gospels. The first word we get of the crucifixion in Mark's gospel is in chapter 8, verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Mark already has this in sharp focus as early as chapter 8, chapter 9, verse 31. Because he was teaching his disciples, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after three days he will rise. The third reference, chapter 10, verse 33. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. Hendrikus Berkhoff, who's a great... Dutch theologian, he says, as early as chapter 3, we're already getting the foreshadowing of the cross, Mark 3, 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. All of this anticipation, this foreshadowing, the early mention of the cross, which is unique to Mark's gospel, causes theologians to say it is a passion history with an elaborate introduction. That's a good thing. It's a passion. In other words, the central focus of the Gospel of Mark, which we believe to be the first Gospel, very short, 16 chapters, is really just a focused study of the crucifixion. Mark wants us to feel the weight of it. He wants us to feel the darkness of it. He wants us to know that it's real suffering, that it's real pain, that, that it's not made up, that it's not seeming to be, but that the weight of this reality is settled on to this person, Jesus. And why does that matter so significantly to you and to me? It is because in this moment, Jesus' experience is something that is common to us. That in this moment, he feels the weight and the loss of sin. That's an emotion we know well. I can't believe I did it. I can't believe I said it. I feel the weight of it, I feel the shame of it, I feel the loss of it. And if he was tempted in every way as we are tempted, then this moment becomes that second moment for me that brings this clarifying moment to what Jesus really felt and experienced. In the garden, he expresses those feelings. God, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. I know you're doing something up here, but down here where I'm living in these circumstances, I don't like the way it's going. I want it to be different. This is not how it's supposed to turn out. This is not how it's supposed to go. And the weight of sin. 
that were it not. Now, I know theologians say, well, he's quoting Psalms 22. And that means he's quoted this passage in which David is anguishing, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he goes on to talk about how God is rescuing him. And so there are many theologians who go, well, Jesus wasn't really anguishing on the cross. He was just quoting Psalms 22. Well, maybe he was. But the theology of the New Testament continues to tell us that the sin of human beings were visited upon Jesus in this moment. The weight and the loss and the separation and the shame and the sense that God had abandoned him. That matters. Because when we say God is for us and not against us, most of us think, well, God is for me when I'm getting it right. And I don't know that he likes me very much when I'm getting it wrong. I don't know that he leans into my weakness and my failure, even though I'm told his grace is made perfect in my, therefore I'll glory in my weaknesses. Because when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. When I figure out that I'm inadequate, but God is for me and not against me. Even when I'm failing miserably, he's for me and not against me. Even when I don't like how the circumstances are unfolding in my journey and in my life, even when I cry out in anguish and I feel abandoned, or I say, God, I don't like how this is going. Maybe you got a plan, but it's not showing up down here on planet Earth, and I need help. Even those days, He's for me, and He's not against me. He's for me. He's for me. In the midst of everything I understand, in the midst of everything I don't understand. What then shall we say? Romans eight thirty one. In response to this, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? There are two things that happen in this moment in Mark's account. One is at this point that Jesus gives up his spirit, the veil of the temple is torn in two symbolizing that we are no longer separated from the Father. There is no longer any barrier for you and I to gain access. And it's not just the veil in the temple. It's the compassionate heart of God who has experienced every temptation just as we are tempted. And now shows us His grace and His mercy. We were talking on Thursday night at our Bible study about the cleansing of the temple. John's account has the triumphant entry and then the cleansing of the temple. The other gospels put the cleansing of the temple earlier in the story. So he comes down and he has the triumphant entry and he goes to the temple and then he goes to Bethany and then he comes back on Monday and he cleanses the temple. And we were talking about why was he so upset about what was happening. We were talking about all the things that go on in the temple. But one of the things that really upset Jesus about the temple was the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women and the court of the men and the holy of holies <laughs> because God was supposed to use Israel to bless all the nations of the world, not separate and divide them. And in this moment of Jesus on the cross, the temple is torn apart to signify one more barrier has been removed from our closeness in communion with a loving God who holds us and wraps us up. Do you... Live in that hope.
Do you let it sweep you forward in the journey you are in, in the circumstances you are in? He is for you and not against you. The second thing he notes is that the centurion at the foot of the cross looks at Jesus in the moment of death and says, surely this man was the Son of God. What's significant about that? The least qualified person in the scene, the last person in the scene who had any business declaring that this was the Son of God. No background, no training, no theological upbringing, no way of knowing all the whys and wherefores. He didn't understand the law. He didn't understand the prophets. He had had no training. He had not set in formal education in any way. In fact, he had plenty of gods and goddesses to entertain himself. Had no need, wasn't looking. Mark has these words on his lips in the scene. Surely this man was the Son of God. To say any one of us, No matter where we came from, no matter where we've been, no matter what we've been through, no matter what we did, we can look up and acknowledge the truth of who He is and how much He loves us and how much He intervenes. For the New Testament writers, this becomes the central moment. It becomes the central reality. 1 Corinthians 1.23, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. 2 Corinthians 5.14, For Christ's love compels us, Because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died, for them who was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. And this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a powerful reality. Hebrews 9.24, For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true when he entered heaven itself, not to appear for us in God's, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he's appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. He is for you and not against you. It seems to me that maybe this morning that there are folks that need to just simply rest in this reality. That the story of Easter, the story of Lent, the story of the crucifixion is a God who completely identifies with what it means to be a human being. When was the last time you felt like you didn't need to edit yourself in your prayer life with God, where you, where you didn't feel like you needed to sort of edit your own feelings and your own journey 
where instead you could just say, God, you see me and you know me. You have been through what it feels like to be a human. You have been tempted in every way, yet without sin. So I can come with confidence before the throne of grace to receive grace and mercy in my time of need. I'm guessing that somebody out there this morning needs some grace and mercy. You need to know that God is for you and not against you. And even when life presents in such a way that you believe somewhere that God has some plan, but today your circumstances cry out, not this, not now, not this way, not this. Change it. Do something different. Let's go a different route. Let's make a new plan. Know that you have a Savior that promises to go with us. We will never walk alone. We will never be abandoned. He is our deliverer. He is our strength and our shield. And I have confidence. He goes before me. Pray with me. God, when we try to grasp how high and wide and deep is the love of God, it is hard for us to grasp. But in the closing moments of this service, we simply bow before you and invite you to do work in our hearts and in our souls. We ask you to wrap up some folks this morning that Maybe struggled to feel that you're for us and not against us. Maybe struggled to feel that you really do understand the depths and complexity. You understand failure. You understand chronic failure. You understand what it means to, to live in this place in which we are so often overwhelmed. But we keep coming back. We keep coming back to, to simply own who we are and confess who we are and and ask for your forgiveness and repent and, and, and invite you to create in us new life. And I pray that as we walk out into this week and we, we journey one more week closer to the celebration of Monday, Thursday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday, I pray that you would go with these who are gathered here, with those that are joining us online, with those that will watch through the course of this week. And I, I pray that you would scoop them up and remind them that right now in their current circumstances, today, you love them. You're walking the journey. You're for them and not against them. You know the feelings. You know the anguish. You know the depression and anxiety. You've... You have been in those spaces and yet without sin. And so we come before you. For anyone in this place that has never simply allowed the sacrifice of Christ to be the atonement for their sins, we take a moment and confess our sins to you. We know that when we confess, you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And I pray if there's folks that are praying that prayer for the first time in this place, that this afternoon they'll send an email to me, to one of the pastors on our staff, to a friend, 
and we can walk this journey together of what it means to be a newborn disciple growing in our faith. Will you now hear the words of our heart as we respond? May, may they not just be rote words that we sort of sing together, but may they instead be a testimony and a celebration of what exactly is our faith. We lift the words to you. We lift them in your honor. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, Amen. Amen. Will you stand? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.